0: How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sarcho podcast, episode oh, four oh.
1: Jeez. I was gonna ask Zeke,
0: how are you feeling today? I'm good, apparently. I'm, I'm hundred appara- episodes behind.
1: I know, apparently you're feeling a lot younger than you are. <laughs> feeling a hundred episodes younger. Had a lot than less white
0: hair in my my hair and my beard. <laughs> oh, my but, I'm good, Jake. How you doing?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm good. I'm um, yeah. just choked on my water.
0: You did. You know, you just, died
1: before we started recording. I know. So bear with me, folks. I gotta, I gotta catch up. I feel like we're going to be asking a lot of each
0: other this this week how mm. we're feeling. Yes, based
1: on the topic of of the show and the yeah. the film we're covering, self care and stuff. Exactly. I also have
0: other questions to ask you, Jake. We do. Do you have any film trivia from the film of the week? I don't feel Stuffs. like answering
1: that right now, Zeke. I'm kidding. I will answer that. I again. do. I do. And um you go on the IMDB page, there's not, not a lot of trivia. In fact there's none. None. But I did notice a few familiar names, so I started going down the list and I noticed that, despite the fact that this is a very different film structurally, visually, from mid nineties, which causes Jonah Hills. I believe his directorial debut mm-hmm. a few years back. Um, he had a lot of the same crew. So we had the same uh DOP cinematographer, Christopher Balvet, I believe it's who I pronounced his name, same editors in Nick Hoy and Nicholas Ramirez, and the same producer in Alison Goodwin. Many, many producers, but that was the only one who was also in mid-90s. There you go. So, uh, good to see Joan Hill sort of making a few connections and keeping those ties mm. from from one film, one type of film to another type of film.
0: Absolutely. absolutely. What
1: about music? What's well, you, Zeke? Speaking
0: highlight? of Joan Hill, mm. it's, I find it quite interesting that, obviously, this film focuses around mental health, men's mental health. Yep. Um... And definitely the wider definitely the wider scope of just mental health and well-being in general. I found it really interesting that those practices carried over to the film's promotional campaign in mm. which Jonah Hill chose not to promote right. this film. It just appeared on Netflix one week, obviously, thanks to your coming soon to uh, Netflix segment of the show. We were right. able to identify it a little bit ahead of time. But mm. yeah, it's due to the fact that he doesn't want to suffer anxiety attacks which i find quite interesting
1: yeah i guess there is obviously a stress to just the industry in general Mm -hmm. let alone promoting your own film one in which even within the film he talks about the anxiety of of the idea and whether it's a good idea or not we can get into all of that but i found that pretty interesting as well i actually misread it initially Mm. i thought it was stuts who 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 said this, who said he was going to not participate in the marketing campaign, but no, it was Jonah Hill, which I think is even more interesting. But hey, hope he's doing well. Yeah. Hope he's doing well, especially after this film. Zeke, the film is far too recent to be on the 1100 films posted behind you. You must watch at least once in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. Would you say this film belongs on that list?
0: Probably not, for me. Okay. Um... Yeah, it'll be interesting to talk about it in the second half of the show.
1: Sure. The, yeah, I before saying my answer, I went on a definitely a bit of a roller coaster ride with this film. That's all I'm gonna say about it. But I think I probably would put it on my poster. Mm. I think. But I I can't wait to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's phrase it that way. Basic, have you watched anything in this past week?
0: I have seen two films, not including the film of the week, three nice. including the film of the week. Nice. Uh, I managed to catch, uh, and this will tie into the second half of the show, but I managed to catch a Spielberg film um, from 2005, I believe it is, which sort of the auties, the you know, uh, the Spielberg, era, you know, decade that are, you know, a little harder to recount the films from, I think. I mean. Sure.
1: Uh, I think Catch With If You Can is probably the, probably the most famous. The best one or the, the most popular one from that era?
0: Yeah, I mean, you got War of the Worlds and, mm. and, and these sort of films that, um, yeah, definitely doesn't hit... You know, coming off the back of the 90s, which have so many uh, Spielberg, like, prolific Spielberg films, it's, uh, it's interesting to watch one that, you know, centres around a, a pre-James Bond, Daniel Craig, mm. and uh, our Australian own Eric Banner which ah. obviously was, you know, at the, sort of at the height hot, of his popularity. Hot popular- off the hills of the Hulk. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> it was actually, it was definitely the height of his popularity. This is sort of early, mid-2000s time, you know, mm. post-Chopper and post-Hulk, I think. Eric Banner was, um, yeah, in that sort of that echelon. Obviously, Daniel Craig's about to become James Bond within the next year or two. Mm. So, it, it's quite interesting to think of this world. Um, it's a good film. It's very long. It's, like, mm. just under three hours. Okay. Um, and it centres around sort of the espionage... Um, and it's a hitman film, like an espionage hitman okay. film. And the, sort of the... Centred around the troubled relationship between Israel and Palestine, Um this definitely obviously is more in his um Jewish focused uh films mm. uh centers around the like the Munich um incident which occurred at the um, Olympic Games in which um a collection of Israel men took um a couple of uh, sorry, a, a collection of Palestinian men took a bunch of Israeli um Olympians right. and uh killed them. Yeah in a hostage situation gone wrong. And, um, that sort of sets the premise for this, um, this group to be assembled, of um, this like shadow splinter group led by Eric Banner and and Daniel Craig to sort of hunt down the men that were responsible for this, this instigation. And Mm -hmm. it, it has very interesting things. Like it intercuts the, the, obviously the, the incident, the, the Munich, um, Heist situation. Sure. Yeah. Tell uh, in concurrently with the actual story with with Banner's story is it goes back and forth between the two and it's really interesting that way. Um, basically shows the 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 very similar to what you would expect. It's it's about paranoia. It's it's what do we do for duty over uh, what's right. A lot of these themes that Mm -hmm. come through and it's a really yeah it's a really solid film. It doesn't. It almost at times doesn't feel like a Spielberg film. Okay, because of its, I guess its subject matter. But we've we've talked about how diverse um, Spielberg is, and sure, I yeah. really enjoyed it. Um, it's just another one on the off the list, isn't it? You tick another Spielberg, yeah, film yeah. off, which is always as so, a filmmaker you want to try and do.
1: I feel mean, like that because I've seen quite a few Spielberg films, but uh, I feel in terms of like directors, where I've seen just like the vast majority of their filmography, I'll lean to like. Tarantino, Scorsese, Spielberg. I've got a bit of catching up to do. Munich's definitely one on my blacklist. Um, Colour Purple is probably a big one. Yeah, that's a big one. And a lot lot more of his war films. Like, I've seen Schindler's List, but like, you know, like you said, War of the Worlds, things like that. Um, A lot of catching up for me to do. Yeah. No, but it's a a good recommendation. What about you, Jake? Yeah, so I haven't watched too much in the last week. I'll talk a little bit about Guillermo del Toro, del Toro's Pinocchio. Ooh. Um and the re- I pre- to preface it I haven't sat down and watched the film entirely from start to finish, mm-hmm. I was wrapping presents and my mum was watching it in the living room, so I saw most of it while I was wrapping presents. So I wasn't fully paying attention to it, but yeah. I was able to get a gist of its art style, the stop motion animation, which is just absolutely gorgeous, and some of the ways they really play with the the Pinocchio story. It is definitely. Quite different from the, I guess, the 1940s Disney version we're probably most familiar with. I think, it, I think the idea is that it is more in line with the themes of the original book from the 1800s, I believe, where it is more about a discussion of religion and war and fascism and the fact that it takes place in 1940s Italy and. Uh, Pinocchio, uh, I won't go too much into that, I think there's a lot of cool surprises in there for people that aren't familiar with those aspects of the story, but I just loved how dark those themes are mm. in terms of death and the afterlife, there's a lot of stuff in there merged with these really cool visuals where, and it was even interesting just hearing Mum talk about it where like, oh that's meant to be Jiminy Cricket like just taking a few extra beats to recognize who the characters were and like, I think it's Sebastian J. Cricket now so they've yeah. changed a few names, and McGregor plays him great great performance there. Um, but even just like the way the characters interact with each other where like, Geppetto kind of hates Pinocchio for most of the story. And there's a very specific reason and twist to that relationship and that story that they show at the start of the film that really establishes why their father-son esque relationship is very different from the one we're used to in the other version. But even just going back to the animation I loved what Guillermo del Toro talked about in the sort of behind-the-scenes stuff I've seen on his Instagram or whatnot, where he talks about there's there's almost a pureness to stop-motion animation and that it's imperfect and that it almost is impossible to perfect because just the nature of the process of Mm -hmm. creating stop-motion animation with puppets and things on strings and all of that, which I love because it's almost the opposite of a realisation I had now. It feels a little silly now saying this, but I remember identifying a problem that I had with the MCU... This is around Civil War. Mm-hmm. This is like, I finished high school, but I hadn't started studying uni yet. We certainly hadn't started this show yet. So I'm sort of still maturing in terms of how I'm watching films, critiquing films, and understanding films. And I think the thing I identified with that I was struggling with Marvel films is that they were felt too perfect. In the sense that there was no risk to the production. Yeah. The fact that they could solve any problem with CGI the fact that there was no camera angle where like something like a mistake happened but like a good mistake mm. you know, even like the dark knight when it's like you got the camera on that that's mounted onto the car that crashes into another car and it's like that camera broke they drove right into the camera it smashed to pieces but that shot's still in the film yeah it's like that's like a cool almost accident but it's a good accident and i think that was something i identified many years ago with marvel that bothered me is that there are no accidents in marvel because yeah. they have so much money and time to just fix every single thing. And it almost takes away the magic of filmmaking, of, you know, trying to get the right lighting for the mm. scene on this location with these actors with this much time left until you can't get the shot, and, like, all of those elements that are present in the animation of this Pinocchio film. So, like I said, I want to sit down and watch it properly from start to finish. Mm-hmm. I don't know how it ends, but... I needed to talk about it a bit because I was just sort of watching it in the corner of my eye, but like, this yeah. is
0: fantastic. Yeah, This is so good. Yeah, he's the right kind of person to take on that story too.
1: Yeah, well, even just his background. We did his director's corner mm-hmm. and like his relationship with, um, you know, War Torn and his upbringing and things like that. It's like, it's just a perfect combination between that and Pinocchio and the magic that goes behind all of that father-son relationship dynamic. Absolutely. The discussion of after. It's great. It's fantastic. Everyone should watch it. Have you seen anything else, like?
0: Yeah. So, I did actually manage to catch uh, The Menu Ooh. in the last week. and I still um, haven't so seen it. So, that's from, obviously, Mark Malod, who, um, just, yeah, I always think has done way more than what he hasn't, like, but he's only done, you know, sort of B-rated comedies and, and Ali G in the house. So, um, okay. a really interesting sort of- Different genre shit for him. Very, yeah, massive shift. Obviously, it's billed as a comedy horror. Okay, like a dark comedy. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of got that, like, it definitely could go in the, the I guess, the us category that's still okay. got the the, the humour there, but there is that very deep, dark undertone. Yeah, I, I honestly would say the menu sits in the category of your Midsommar's... Um, wow. Okay. In the sense that, but Midsummer is far more grotesque. Sure. And and I think this film actually is quite funny because it's built like a horror, but it's not really scary at all. Sure. Um, we could easily, I would easily say Bones and All was scarier. Okay. Um, or more grotesque. Um, it's look, it's for, I've got to get up. Yeah, the, uh, the cast list. It's an amazing ensemble cast.
1: It's it's. I know it's Ralph Fiennes and Anya Taylor Joy. Is Nicholas Holt? Isn't that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I know and, they're like the free, like sort of the trio.
0: Yeah, and look, and you got like John Liguizamo in there. And, okay. Um, it, it's got a really nice ensemble cast, and obviously it centres around them going to this island restaurant, and obviously things do take a turn, but mm. the the film really plays off. Um, I mean, it's ta- it's another notch in Taylor Joy's, you know, um, meteoric rise mm. into this this industry. I mean, you know, in, in the space of, what, three, four years, she's now really solidifying herself as she's a part of this next generation I think, coming I think through.
1: I, I can't even remember what the statistic is, but I think she literally is the most busy actor
0: working today.
1: She's... Amazing. I think there was. I swear, yeah. there was a statistic that came out that like proved that she is.
0: She has quickly <laughs> become, like, in my opinion, like she's the premier actress right now. Mm. She is so diverse and arranged. range. She's a fantastic protagonist. Mm. Like in every film or series, I think Queen's Gambit, she walks that line of being. She plays a really good, like, arrogant protagonists a very similar mm. very kin to sort of the way that leo delivers stuff you know like okay. he's very like his, his especially his later career stuff he's not like he he like it's the belford right like you like jordan belford but he's a horrible person and i think taylor joy is really interesting because she plays obviously secrets unveiled over the courses it, it literally goes through each of the nine courses and then dessert right. and like it Intercuts between the story, the narrative that's unfolding, and like these super like close up cutaways of the food, like you know, like they a do commercial when d- they do her. in like the cooking shows, where that's it's like clever, and it lists the ingredients, and that that is played for humor in the yeah. finale. And I, I won't give away too much of the yeah, the please plot. don't. I would love to see it, it. For me, it probably was the most entertaining film I have seen this year. Wow. Um. I enjoyed it probably as much as everywhere, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah. Um, but not nearly as um, mind boggling, uh, sure, <laughs> um, and overwhelming. It was just an absolute blast. It was entertaining. Like I said, the comedy side too. The, the, honestly, the, the, and finds i mean, it's it's Voldemort, so it's pretty easy for him to be a really good bad guy, isn't <laughs> sure. <laughs> it? Sure. But the, the use of sound repetition—it it is almost structured. Like it could easily be a stage play. The way it's—that's cool. Yeah. Um, it very much is almost a a one room uh, drama with mm. only very few. They don't use like the island to its fullest potential or anything like okay. that. It's um, but it, this it's mostly this area, this kitchen and... cult that he has cultivated mm. almost. It has that yeah that sort of midsummer. They go to a world that they don't fully understand. And right. It, it's almost too late by the is time it, they is do. Is it?
1: And I don't don't spoil it. And this is just what I interpreted from the trailer: is that she doesn't really care, but the boyfriend's way more into yeah. Okay, that's the sort of the vibe I got from the trailer.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's that's pretty much the 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 purpose is yeah. she doesn't understand the point of the, and they really go into the sort of um, commentary. It's very like anti sort of like the capitalism, anti the one percent kind of film. Sure, it, it goes into the commentary of how you know all of this prestigious food, ironically, is for just the rich, um, and th- those who. They're the only ones that can appreciate it, but they don't really appreciate it. Sure, um, it's like a status. Thing? Well, there's definitely a huge motive. That's that's basically you know that's the intrinsic motivation for the antagonist, mm-hmm. basically. And um, but it's just really entertaining to be honest. And but I wouldn't call it horror. I would have called it more psychological thriller. Like yeah. it definitely sits more in that category for me because of. The essence, the the way it's not, it's sort of. But then I could also argue to an extent, midsummer. If it wasn't for such, some of such gro- more grotesque t- scenes, it's not yeah. super horrifying. In the, I guess it's that it's not conventional horror. It's probably yeah, what Asta well that, that's does. the
1: thing. I think horror, is, we don't talk about it so much, but it is such a broad genre. And like, horror in its entirety is just about making the audience who are either scared or uncomfortable. And I think that's where you get that wide range where it's like Midsommar. It's a, it's, I mean, you can do slashes mm-hmm. with jump scares and like gruesome murders and things. But then you've got Midsommar where it's like a lot of, it's slower takes and nothing's jumping at you, but it's just like this eerie atmosphere with every now and then you get something horrible. Yeah. You just can't look at the screen because it's too gross to look at. And then something like this where it's more, sounds more psychological. It's and very, sticks with it's you. a very
0: well-written script. Yeah. There isn't. There really isn't a lot of holes to poke in it, and you're so entertained most of the time, and you are yeah. thoroughly engaged that it's one of those films you're like, "God, I'm really happy I saw that in the cinema because I think yeah, that, yeah. that was an experience to sit there and like whisper, oh, what do you think's happening like, like, it's had that level of of draw and engagement yeah.
1: to it. I gotta say the, menu, uh, the it, it's it's just from what I'm hearing, it just sounds like that this is the go-to like word of mouth film of the year. Yeah, I mean, like everything everywhere had tremendous word of mouth, but I think there was something else going on there where it just kind of it all hit immediately. And this film, it just feels like slowly, 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 it's bubbling up, bubbling up,
0: and yeah. now it's just
1: like everyone I talk to loves this film. So I, I got no excuse anymore. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> gotta it's go that. It.
0: It's that pleasant. And I mean, it's playing in Hoyt's, but it is that pleasant. It feels like an indie film enough to be like, wow, this was really good. But I think it's it's a mixture of things. It's, like I said, it's another notch in... I mean, obviously, like at this point, Nicholas Holt, he, he's very established as an actor, but it is nice to actually see him in that sort of role, because I yeah. feel like he doesn't really get that main centre of attention screen time. And uh, he is definitely the supporting in this, and it sure. is still Taylor Joyce film, but... You know, it's it's sort of like what we're seeing when we know with Chazelle's Babylon coming out. We're kind of seeing this is what looks to be like it's the Rob, it's the Margot Robbie kind of final coronation. Like this will be the film that was like okay, Rob, like Margot Robbie's like at the at her peak now. Right. Like we're hitting we're hitting that she's hitting that Scarlett Johansson level of acclaim. And you know, you take a tier tier down, two tiers down, you start to see these Taylor Joys, the Thomas and Mackenzie's, these like these ones that are just they're starting to build up that steam where it's like, Wow, what an amazing like cast. And right. I mean it's just another good film for our finds. It's like what's what's what is there to say about him? Yeah.
1: I think I think what's really gonna be interesting with, with Anya Taylor Joy's near future is obviously Furiosa, which mm. is potentially like probably the biggest film she's gonna be in. And if she she probably will nail that, but then and then you got the Super Mario thing as well in terms of the animation. That's obviously all finished as well, filmed I should say. But then what happens to? Does she end up in Marvel? Does she end up in Star Wars? Does it get well, to I that stage you, where she just gets nabbed up from one of those conglomerates? Probably.
0: I mean, yeah. I like I said, it has happened to. Um, well, she Robbie. was she
1: was in she was in that other Marvel film that was like not it wasn't MCU but it was like a. But she could be like Leo. What, what was it called? Like,
0: like she could be like Leo, just not in that that realm. Just be the, yeah. I hope, so. blockbuster. I hope so. That's what I'm
1: saying in terms of trajectory. Yeah. Does she just stay where she is now? Because I think mean, that's that's probably the best thing. Yeah. Is if she stays in this realm of she's just doing all sorts of different films and projects, never quite doubles into that Marvel thing. But like I said, she was in a Marvel thing a few years ago, and I think thankfully everyone forgot it. That what was it called? The, 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 in something, in the, the, the humans, the, the defenders, the inhumans, the inhumans, is that a thing?
0: What well, the mutants. The mutants? Was that the was new it? mutant. Was it the mutants? new
1: mutants? She was in that. That was it.
0: Oh, well, that one. So yeah. she
1: dabbled and I think, thankfully, he's going to get away.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but but it, so it's a fun film. It's definitely name. one of those films that, yeah, it, it, you walk away and go... That was money well But I also found out, and this is actually mm. this this ties into our show, obviously. Really interesting. because um, we always talk about and we'll bring up the Russos how expensive are ticket prices in the cinema. Okay. Um and obviously Jake, we we have our hustle and we go together of how mm. we, we get off cheap. But oh, I found yeah. out yeah. um that on Tuesdays because I thought they got I rid of clarify, cheap Tuesdays.
1: Just to clarify, when you say we found our hustle, it's be autistic. That's our hustle. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, you can't just. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's fair. That's fair. Um, but otherwise, it's a good hustle. <laughs> um, yeah. No, on I thought they had gotten rid of cheap Tuesdays, but if you are, they still good ads for it. Yeah, but it's it's cheap movies if you're an eBay Plus member. But on Tuesdays, mm. if you're just an eBay shopper, right. so if you have an eBay account, it's eleven dollars. Oh, on well, a Tuesday, I definitely remember. Excuse
1: me, I definitely remember them putting up ads for the cheap Tuesdays, and there was an eBay thing in that. Yeah, I remember, it, but I never knew specifically what you it literally
0: was. just have to have an account on eBay and you oh, get eleven dollars well, tickets. Go. So I was like, well, I'm only going to Hoy because it's you know it's twenty dollars now yeah. on a normal day. It's getting pretty absurd. That's ridiculous. <laughs> My uh, lunar uh, rewards thing's lunar gonna expire. Gone, yeah, and that goes up. That's fifteen bucks. That's now up to fifteen. It was fourteen when we got it two years was ago. Was it fourteen? Mm-hmm. Oh. It's fourteen fifty this year, and it's gone up another fifty cents.
1: Huh. Okay.
0: But it's all right. There's more. I haven't films. been that.
1: I haven't been as much this year, so maybe I still got two free so. tickets.
0: I need to. Mm-hmm. I need to have, You need to sell me on something.
1: Yeah, oh, there'll be something. Yeah, there'll be something. Not much this week.
0: Yeah. The menu is definitely <laughs> um, going to be one of those films. We could be seeing it in the Oscar time, maybe only for a screenplay nod or a...
1: Yeah, that's... Having not seen it, that kind of feels like... Kind of like when Knives Out was like... That was mm-hmm. one nom a few years ago. It yeah. kind of feels like a similar... It wouldn't
0: ilk. surprise me if we see it nominated. I don't know if it did win, but um, I haven't seen Glass Onion yet, so um, we shall right. see which one I prefer. But it's it's fun. It's fun. And the... The way, like, the the climactic scene and the way Taylor Joy, you know, like, the way it all unfolds is really good. Mm. Um, okay. So, check out the menu.
1: Very exciting. Well, the last thing I saw was actually earlier today. Ooh, I saw they... Plebs, Soldiers of Rome.
0: Not what about Plebs? What is this? You see, Kirsty really likes it.
1: Yeah. I feel like I've definitely talked about it on the show before. Okay. It's a British show. And so it takes place in like ancient Rome, so it's it's sort of making fun of, it's sort of putting a contemporary spin on that setting, Mm -hmm. where it's you know well orgies are normalised, but it's also about like you know guys who are losers, you struggle to pay the rent. It's kind of putting a contemporary twist in that setting, but this is the movie. So there's been five series, so five seasons Mm -hmm. have come out. And I've I've been hearing about this all year that they have been shooting a movie, and then I I just randomly looked at me and Kirsty were like, when's that movie coming out? I looked it up two days ago, and bada-boom, movie was already it had aired So the way to watch this, I was able to do it for free as long as I cancel my trial. Mm. So uh, you have to go on ITVX, that is a British okay. streaming service, and you can make it's like SBS on demand. So you can make an account, watch stuff for free, but you have to endure a few ads. Ads are pretty intensive on the ITVX service, SBS. We've talked about how good their ad yeah. system is over there. There's so few ads per movie. They play at the perfect time. And what's interesting about this, they must have known this must be a TV film because the film actually works around the ads, where it's almost like after 20 minutes, it will come up with the title and then it'll play the ads, and then it comes up with a title again, and it resumes the movie. So they've obviously shot it, knowing it's going to be a TV movie, or it's going to be aired with commercials, um, which I appreciate. It helps that experience. So you've got to get that account. You have to put in a a UK postcode, which is easy enough to just look up. But then you need a VPN, because it will detect if you're in a UK IP server. So I was able to do that, get a two-week trial with a VPN thing so i'm probably just going to cancel it because i have otherwise no use for a vpn Mm. um i i know it's useful and blah 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 i get it i get it but anyway so that's the little workaround to watch plebs soldiers of rome which is yeah the i guess the conclusion it's very conclusive the end it's got the title cards where all the characters end up and it's it's very satisfying like all the the funny quirks like gromeo's easily everyone's favorite he's just the greatest character so he's the slave so it's two roommates and he's their slave and He's you know very lazy and has the funny accent and loves food he's is obsessed with food loves his chicken and everything so it's they kind of have these little wrap ups at the end of the movie to you know everyone's very satisfied like oh these characters ended up where you would sort of expect them to be mm. um but in terms of the film itself i was curious because it was shot to be a film They didn't mush a bunch of episodes together to do it. Mm. And even the plot line, it kind of feels like that final epic thing where they're all sort of enlisted into war. So they're part of this sort of Roman army and they're obviously incredibly ill-equipped to do it. They pretty much enlist just to like have the status of like, you know, we're soldiers and we're going to sleep with girls and get free food. And and of course, immediately war breaks out. So they have to go into that. It's kind of a classic comedic situation Mm. they find themselves in. But uh, through based just on that alone, it is more epic than a lot of the show would be. Not so much through the camera work or the editing or the pacing. That It kind of feels like you're just watching the show, but for an extended period mm. of time. Like, it doesn't really change anything up that way. It's just more virtue of them being at war that the film feels more epic because there's more battle scenes and there's more stakes at risk where they're literally... It was weird seeing scenes where, like, oh, it looks like this character's dead. Which, is, imagine... like. Watching How I Met Your Mother, and then they do a movie where yeah. half the characters like, oh my god, they're dead. Yeah, it's like it, it's really weird. It's <laughs> I It'd be very wrap, odd. I had to wrap my head around that one, which is fine. But I very much enjoyed the film. I found it really funny. Um, the only other thing I would say is different from the show is that it just felt this one was a little more crude. Kind of felt like they they had an extra uh, layer of because it the humor is quite crude. Yeah, I mean the first episode is about them trying to get into an orgy, so it's like that's kind of the the general humour you're going to find with the show. It felt like they took one layer of censorship off, whereas there's a little more swearing. Some of the sex scenes are a little more overt. We see a little bit more than we're used to. So it kind of felt like, oh, there's the movie-isms of that. Yeah. Kind of like the Simpsons movie. You get a lot more nudity in the Simpsons movie than the Simpsons. <laughs> Just those little bits there. But no, I had a lot of fun with the movie. I still need to watch the rest of the series. I've watched like a handful of episodes, mm. which goes to say that you can pretty much watch this... With very little stand knowledge, alone, yeah. yeah, pretty much standalone. Very little knowledge on. You just need to know the basic quirks of the characters and the setting. That's really all you need to know to enjoy the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a great time with it. So there's your workaround for plebs, soldiers of Rome, which only came out a few days ago.
0: Beautiful mm. little little cinema sideshow uh, skills. Rather. Yeah,
1: tips of the trade. Yeah. See, that's a hustle, Zeke. Yes. Having autism, that that's a it's a hustle. But it's also something to live with. Yes. And, Zeke, there are many people out there living with all sorts of things that perhaps they can visit a therapist to work their way through. Oh, And if that's not the segue of a lifetime...
0: I was about to say, that is the best segue you've done in 204 episodes. Thank you. And then you, you. had to go call it out.
1: Well, I had to. You're taking your time.
0: But, Jake, <laughs> what are we watching?
1: <laughs> this week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Stuts.
2: The average shrink will say, don't intrude on the patient's process. They will come up with the answers when they're ready. That's not acceptable. They just listen. And your friends, who are idiots, give you advice. And you want your friends just to listen. (laughs) And you want your therapist to give you advice. You don't have to solve all their problems, but you have to give somebody the feeling that they can change right now. What's the wrong, Connor? How can I make a movie where I'm talking about people being vulnerable and working on their problems and not be vulnerable myself? You can't move forward without being vulnerable. Vulnerability connects you to the rest of the world. You're giving out the signal to the world, I need you because I can't do this by myself. I was this wildly insecure kid. The work has been accepting and feeling that it's great to be this person. You are still in the struggle and in the fight of being a human just like everybody else. Take action no matter how frightened you are. If you can teach somebody that, they can change their whole life. That makes a lot of sense. This is such a great moment right now. I still wish you would stop dumping so much shit on me. <laughs> This is either the greatest documentary ever made or the worst. And it's probably both.
0: (laughs) In candid conversations with actor Jonah Hill, leading psychiatrist Phil Stutz explores his early life experiences and unique visual model of therapy.
1: Mm. I like that. Unique visual model therapy. It's kind of the main... I mean, that's the key right there, is what feels different between this and what you would expect a therapy mm-hmm. session to play out. And they even reference it in the film as, you know, a lot of therapists are listeners and, and, and Stutz is, uh, I think, is a much more affirmative person. Yes. I feel like I'm getting very specific already, but, Zeke, we've both seen Stutz in the last week. We did. I I don't think either of us have really any clue what we think of the film respectively. I purposely logged it without a rating. Mm. Because I wanted to sort of not only let it digest, but um, like I said, it was a bit of a roller coaster ride between what I felt about this film. Mm. So right off the bat, Zeke, what do you think of Stutz?
0: The movie, not the it's, person. It's definitely <laughs> an interesting sort of reflexive style documentary. Um in its candid's a really good word they've used there in, in the in the log line, 'cause um it's a weird it's such a unique concept it's not a concept that strikes it strikes curiosity Mm. the 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 concept of this film this this patient talking to their therapist about therapy Mm. but in such a way that it doesn't that it moves between being an academic conversation to a a philosophical conversation mm. to a hyper personable and emotional um conversation and and having it centered around this this sort of unique therapist in his beliefs his dispositions and his approaches to his profession it also it's a it's an interesting film in the in that sense what, what i find trite quite interesting is it really highlights the remarkable nature of people doing their job mm. and talking about the philosophy behind their job the rationale to their decision making and naturally exploring someone who remain someone's existence on every in every facet for no other reason than because we can't because the human mind and the way people interact and and build relationships with each other is utterly unique and amazing to explore in itself. Yeah. Um, I think,
1: and I I wrote it down, I said this could potentially be our most personable episode since The Father, (laughs) because I think this is a very hard film to talk about without self-injecting you know your own context of life and of oneself because i mean that's like you said that's what so much of these conversations that i had in this film what were that? about and i related to a lot of it in the sense of trying i'm always constantly thinking about or contextualizing life through a very specific lens one that i can understand myself mm. and i wrote down all of Stutz's tools yeah. And I think it'll be cool at some point in the show to go through each of them and sort of talk about not necessarily how we relate to them, but just sort of talk about the tools themselves and the processes and whether those work or not or, or reflect yeah. our lives at all. Because I don't think yeah. they all necessarily have to. Yeah, th- this assumes that there is a specific antagonist in your life, and it can be a person, it can be um, an object can be mm-hmm. the the Pardex. we talks about sort of the mm. invisible self-barrier. There's a lot of things in there that may or may not apply to us. But to go back to the very start of the film, where Jonah Hill talks about... He he pretty much says it to the camera the first minute. His thesis. That he wants to make this documentary about his therapist, about Stutz. Not only to share him as a person with the world, but share his ideas in hopes that someone out there might benefit from them yeah or help them contextualize life or their own life for example and when i think about that premise i think i kind of have to give this film the thumbs up in terms of i think it does achieve that to an extent at least it achieves it for me Mm -hmm. it's it's a whole wide gamut of people out there zeke it's hard to say which well i guess my question to you would be did you find that there was something worth taking away from this conversation from this film
0: yeah. I think it's 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 a film that definitely has s- makes you think in the moment. I know the first 10 the first 20 minutes mm. are very Oh, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> um you, you it, like you said it, it is such a roller coaster cuz there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons. It's like, okay, this is 90 minutes and we're essentially watching a therapy session play out mm-hmm. and just in the reverse is, is it, how high concept is this going to be? Are we sure. going to, is this going to be an incredibly scientific film? Are we going to, or is it going to be more like reflective, like what Bo Burnham does with Inside? Mm. Are we going to really look into Jonah Hill's psyche? Yeah, or or you know Phil Stutz's psyche, you know, when we're talking about, and, and the and the film then ha- hits that turn point. You go, know, oh, there's there's a little bit more to this. We're kind of look, we're kind of looking at both, yeah, and, and we're really exploring the dynamic between patient and and doctor, and then we're then we're actually taking it that step further. We're actually just exploring the personal relationship these two have with each other, mm. um, and. You know, there's a lot of very high concept, super philosophical conversations about uh, perennial impact, uh, lost loves, mm-hmm. and relationships that could have potential, and and mm-hmm. how intimacy works between a relationship. How yeah. we tie that into ourselves. It's there's a lot of ideas, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of thoughts, yep. and it. It feels incoherent at times, but it's being deliberately a little bit incoherent. I don't. Okay. The, um, I think it comes back to where we're exploring the anxiety of a person creating a film, exploring concepts such as anxiety and mental health. It's, it's uh, there
1: hyper-participatory, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and major
0: with its, its sort of meta-commentary, the, mm. um, the deconstruction of... of one's documentary happens over the course of the film Mm -hmm. um
1: which i i think right off the bat i think that was the big kicker for me was that scene happens you're right about 20 25 minutes in where it almost like the facade has been lifted mm -hmm. because up until that point i watched the first you know first scene i guess you would call it the first 20 minutes of this documentary and i'm like oh no oh no oh, this is falling into a lot of traps right now. And it was such a breath of fresh air. I was like, oh shit, they're acknowledging this. Because I'll read just some of the raw notes that I wrote prior yeah. to that twist happening. And I guess, I don't know if there's anyone listening doesn't know what we're referring to or didn't want to watch the film or whatever, I just the twist of being that um, this, you're right, the idea that we're just in a session, one therapy session, is ripped apart and we see that... We're not in the room. We're in a green screen studio. And Jonah Hill's wearing a wig. And it's actually been two years. And Jonah Hill's like, I've been working on this for two years and I have no clue that if any of this is going well at all. So it's like, it's it's completely breaking down what the film is set up to be. Mm. Which, you know, when you figure that set and the conversations they're having and he's even, the fact that he's even wearing a wig at all to... to they're wearing the same clothes, you know, to signify yeah. it's all one day... First of all, that must be exhausting for them. But it's something that, as an audience member, I'm watching it. Just, I'm not buying it, and I'm not thinking that that's a set or that this isn't one day or any of those things. But there's something about it that felt inauthentic. That when that twist happens, it does feel authentic. I'm going to read some of these to you because I I wrote a bit about the flowing camera work, especially Mm -hmm. in the early 20 minutes. You will notice like the cameras, there's so many cameras placed between them. I'm like, how are they having a normal conversation? The fact that the camera's doing these like dolly movements and flows, the fact that it's like edited very quickly mm. when we cut to um, Stutz's illustrations, it's almost like cut, 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 cut. It's like how can I interpret what's actually been written down on there? Mm. It almost felt like everything that was happening I was like, Well this doesn't serve the thesis. Like it just seems like you're doing this character piece with a lot of fancy shots and editing. Yeah. Until that moment hits. It's like, oh, I see. And then then the film slows down. And even though it doesn't change all that much, even the colour, it goes from black and white to colour and then back to black and white. And even though Jonah Hill puts the wig back on and the film's in black and white again and we go back to those same kinds of conversations, I'm suddenly way more invested. Because Mm. the facade has been, even if it was just temporarily, it's been lifted. The curtain came back down. But at least I know what's behind it now. And it's like, okay, now I understand the authenticity of what's happening here. I think that is such a dramatically important part of this film. Completely changed it for me. It was like, okay, now I buy into this premise. Now I'm interested in what these people are saying.
0: Yeah. Because it doesn't feel as contrived or forced or... Yeah, well,
1: That thing that I just couldn't put my finger on, you're right. All of a sudden, oh, that's what's going on. And they're aware of it. So, yeah, I think that was a good little curtain lift... For me, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: and it, and it it's interesting because then they they spend the rest of the film though it's back in black and white. Mm. They don't even change the green screen. Yeah, yeah. They just, I, I
1: think that's something that Stutz says towards the end. He's like, I actually like this background with the the green screen. I think that's what he was referring to. But you're right. It's like that there are some things that are left there. It's like let's not bother. <laughs> We've shown the audience what the truth yeah. is now. So I was like, yeah, let's put the black and white filter back on, but we're not going to animate every because then it becomes fake again. Yeah, and I think that that moment was so real for me because you see Jonah Hill, you see him sitting there, and he's sort of, because when you're watching it, you're like, oh, this is day two, mm. and it's like maybe he just watched the footage back and is unhappy, and then you realize, oh, this is we're entering into the third year, and you slowly realize how much everything that he's revealing, his anxiety about the film, and his um insecurity about the the process of the film, whether it's even a good idea. That's not something that he held on for a day. That's something he held on for two years. Yeah, and we're seeing it all leak out of him. And I and so one of the things as well, this from talks about is Stutz has Parkinson's, of course, um, which I think is really important to just his visual physique, where he's such a soft-spoken person.
0: Yeah, and the the emphasis on the sort of the the tremor-based hands. Yeah. and the writing yeah. style, and and because he's such a yeah, because he's such a visual therapist mm. and uses diagrams a lot. It's it's Sort of is reflexive of, of that, and the titles and and the title cards and the motion graphics all mm. mirror that, that handwriting ability. Yeah,
1: and he, and even to just to add to that is like it adds to this feeling he's so fragile. Yeah, not only with the voice, but you're right, the shaking and and it wasn't even just that when he's listening to Jonah Hill in this moment where they're sort of breaking down what the film was going to be at this point. The the look on his face, it's like you can tell how important this is Mm. this moment where he's like let's try something different at least from a directing standpoint in the moment i'm sure this was him just like letting out and he Mm -hmm. i don't know if he knew what he was going to do from that point on but as a director in post deciding okay we're going to plant this thing here yeah and then every conversation happens afterwards it could have been before that scene happened yeah but we're going to play those after this realization and I think yeah, I don't want to get hung up too much on that one moment, but it mm. is such a fundamentally important moment for this documentary. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: <laughs> I think it's it's interesting that they then they part of the documentary serves as a biographical um deconstruction mm. of of Stutz and sort of his relationship with his parents and, and their relationship with their with their parents and yep. and this sort of discussion of like intergenerational trauma that you know, affects the way your children are raised, um, the perceptions of the world, their outlooks, how that shapes your personality. um, And basically tying it back to his tools Mm. and his ideology that these tools are the best means of fixing your problems.
1: Yeah, and this is something... You know, early on when Jonah Hill says he thinks of traditional therapists as listeners and his friends and more the the answer men and he kind of yep. makes those roles reverse and that sort of represents that reversed role because he is the kind of guy that says this is spe- these specific things are what you need to do to feel better which I think mean, is, is a ballsy approach but that is his approach and it's obviously worked for Jonah Hill and, and, and if this film reaches out to anyone I guess that's sort of Commending that approach that he has mm. um i really wish i had uh, thought more about we could have even brought like a psychiatrist or a, a student of psychiatry on as a as a guest it's fine it's <laughs>
0: we're gonna uh, just the, us two doofuses are gonna yeah, do it ourselves really <laughs> our forte <laughs> but i'm
1: gonna go through some of these tools that you mentioned because i've wrote them all down and they do yeah go into what we we're saying with he's a much more affirmative direct therapist mm-hmm. Um he's not so he's obviously a listener and he's a he's a good friend of Jonah Hills so we'll start with the life force, which is i think the first thing he refers to, which is a pyramid that focuses on those three things your relationship with your body with others, and then finally yourself i I guess in terms of and it, and again like even though i'm i spend a lot of time personally thinking about my context with the things around me mm-hmm. and events that are happening and And I'll talk about one thing that Jonah Hill, a a tactic he uses, I don't even think he overtly mentions in the document. It's just something I noticed him doing multiple times, um, was taking these lessons and these tools and converting them into a storytelling way of understanding. Yeah. So the other one I wrote in terms of part X, which is like that judgmental side of yourself, the invisible barrier you you self-set against your own goals... And Jonah Hill refers to this as the antagonist of the story. And that you need you can't go on that journey without the antagonist because the antagonist is what you know puts Invokes you on the, change. Exactly, yeah. invokes change and evolution and so and he did this with a couple of other things. I'm trying to remember what the other one was, but he did it a few times where he referred to traditional storytelling, free act structure, mm-hmm. which makes sense if he's a director and an actor and in lots of movies. That makes sense. But it's, it's interesting because that's something that I not in the traditional free act structure, but I almost look at my life in that sense where if I can't make sense of all these all the people in my life, all the events in my life, the journeys that I'm going through, if I can't recontextualize that through you know an arc that you would see on a television show mm-hmm. you know with, with the, the seasonal jumps and each character has an arc each year and things, if I can't contextualize that, I feel like I failed. Yeah and I feel like that, that that fictional TV show is not written well enough. Which is i don't know if that's an impossibility, would you say, because everything just feels so random but
0: yeah i i i think that that is definitely a possibility mm. for sure i mean it's it is interesting the the way that you can view that though, yeah, yeah, um,
1: I think that's something, and it's not like I've gone around telling many people that, but that does authentically feel like how my brain works half the time, and just seeing Jonah Hill kind of do something similar with taking these tools that have their own definitions or Stutz definitions mm-hmm. and understanding them through a storytelling medium of like, okay, this makes sense to me because I understand how script well, we works. often We
0: often do that in the world. We, mm. we break down any sort of, of questions or things that we don't have strong understandings and we always try and seek, you know, we use the skills that we know. Mm. But yeah, I mean, it, and Jonah Hill is sort of simplifying it so it doesn't get too scientific sure, and makes it more consumable too.
1: Yeah. I, I just, I really related to that part. But then there's other aspects where I relate to stuts even more so. Mm. Now, I'll go through a few more of these tools. Three aspects of reality, which is pain, uncertainty, and constant work. Which, there's definitely an element of. Tr- I, I guess the idea here is that these are three things that are almost completely unavoidable. Yeah. I guess in the sense that. You can go a long stretch of your life without feeling extensive pain. You know, I, I feel lucky in that I haven't lost a lot of people in my life, or I feel like I haven't. I feel like it's been quite spaced out when I've gone through those moments. Um, but then there's on the other spectrum, you've got people who are just completely financially well off, mm-hmm. and the idea of constant work just doesn't apply. Yep. So I actually wonder if these three aspects of. The the thing is, he just three aspects of reality, and I yeah. think anyone who's living on a multi million dollar pile, who doesn't have to work and does not feel pain, is not living uh, the reality that most people are. Yeah. So I guess that's yeah. how I would. Would you agree that's sort of how you yeah. contextualize Yeah. I there. wonder if a
0: lot of lot of his clients are celebrities too. Does he work? I
1: think they are. I read that somewhere. Yeah. It's kind of that's. The, I mean, I guess it makes sense. Like, yeah, you wouldn't have um you know, everyday schmoes coming into your office yeah. and then Jonah Hill just shows up. <laughs> I think I did read that he does do a lot of um, celebrities and models mm. and things like that. So that's interesting that you pointed that out because that almost removes that idea of constant work. And if you apply it to Jonah Hill, who I imagine is very well off financially, his constant work comes from this idea of he wants to... Uh, I think he says it at one point. Is it? Is it the... It's not the... Sh- it's the snapshot so the snapshot, the realm of illusion, which is sort of that perfect experience that you want, you know, whether mm. it's like the perfect wife or the you know the perfect amount of money or a house or those goals yeah. may or may not be achievable. And Jonah Hill says that he achieved his snapshot in terms of being in these movies, maybe like working with Martin Scorsese, for example, but that that didn't make him feel better and it didn't earn him the accolades. Because I think that was the real snapshot was earning Oscars, which he didn't do. Yeah. So I made him feel depressed or fall into a depression again. Mm-hmm. So I think even looking at people who are financially well off or have these seemingly great careers, there is a constant work hiding in there.
0: Yeah. Well, it's uh and it sort of refers to the the shadow, right? The shadow yeah, that's always that's there, another one. ever looming, doesn't it?
1: Visualization of your past self. Honey, I I want to ask. Yeah. Like if we look at your shadow, so I guess your younger version. And okay. I can't remember if there was... <laughs> I can't remember if there was a specific age or... No,
0: there wasn't. It was just a uh, past self. Uh... Yeah.
1: I mean, but John, he just did the printout of, like what, 13? Was that how old he yeah. was? Yeah. Something like that. So yeah. it was 13 or 15. Thing. Yeah. And, okay. That, that, that's cool because it kind of broadens it up a bit. In terms of your shadow, Zeke... Mm-hmm gonna get very philosophical here <laughs> boy is there a, is there a period where you think you relate to that is there a, a shadow period that you do look back to often or more than once
0: um like in a positive way or a negative way
1: um let's see you must relate to it in some form they refer to this when talking about self-presentation i i i know did they, they did not really specify did they i imagine it's negative or the or the idea is that if you have a negative perception of your shadow, you must change that into a positive perception of your shadow. Okay. And that was the I guess that was a journey that Jonah Hill went on where he had to close his eyes and visualize that, and and what send all the, this is the um sorry this is the antagonist this is a different I think mm. it's radical acceptance something I but this idea of concentrating your love onto the shadow self. But that's a good point. Do you have a shadow and do you feel regret? About that shadow, or do you look back um, fondly on that shadow? I
0: think when I finished high school, so yep. fresh eighteen, I think that that time I, I look back and that first year out was definitely not a very positive year. It was probably okay, honestly, the worst worst year of my life in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that was a mixture of not really knowing how to cope, moving out of high school and into mm-hmm. the real world. Um, I think my values and my objectives weren't clear. Right. And led to a lot of unnecessary mistakes that really didn't need to happen. Mm. Um but yeah, probably that time. What about you? Okay.
1: Yeah. Um it's interesting cuz I I mean, I feel like I'm in a really good place now in terms of looking to the future and and I have that perception of, you know, I'm glad that the path, of, whatever path I've taken, I'm glad I've taken it because I'm here now and I'm glad to be here. But I think I went for a long time really idolizing, a little maybe a little earlier than your period, maybe more like that, those later years in high school. Mm. Um, Well, that shadow, I think up until a, a while, not that long ago, I should say, I sort of idolized that shadow. Because yep. it almost felt like, oh, there was a lot of great things happening for me back then but then there's those other moments where I think back and it's like well I, you know maybe I said some dumb things or I did some dumb things mm. that I don't necessarily may, maybe I am my best version of myself now I think in a lot of ways I am I think you are not, oh thank you you're fantastic <laughs> maybe not physically but <laughs> uh, yeah. well, had uh, skinnier uh, cheekbones back <laughs> then but um no but that that's another part of it as well and, and I mean that's a big part for Jonah Hill was, he talks about a lot is the weight loss yes and I I haven't had severe weight loss or gain in the same way that Jonah Hill has had. I mean, he was in that was it Maniac, show with um Emma Stone. Emma Stone, yeah, and he looked very skinny in that. Yeah. So yeah. It, it looks like he's put the weight back on since then.
0: But it's interesting his position where he talks about like losing the weight wasn't didn't make him happy. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it was this, it was just these unhealthy extremes or. Or having your whole career based around... And we never really grasp that because it's like, what is, who is Joni Hill? Well, yeah. Joni Hill, for a lot of people, is a, is a comedy-based actor that often has been centred around what was made famous by being centred around being a larger larger person, yeah. larger comedian. I mean, and it's really interesting, you know, you look, at, you look at him or you look at, like, Rebel Wilson or you look at Melissa McCarthy and it's like, these are... They are typecast, but they were made famous and they were, like, from being looking that way. Mm. And it's interesting that it becomes so synonymous with their identity that even when they lose a radical amount, like, they they lose a radical amount of weight, we're still attributing them to that. And that would lead to a lot of self-value issues because people would be like, oh, you... You, we liked you better when you were fat. Right. Like, well, that's such a weird way to look at it. And it's interesting because it is such a, it has that, those, those undertones of, of Bojack in this documentary where mm. they, they sort of talk about the, uh, Jonah doesn't explore too much of his own personal sort of mental health battles. But we, we do see the, 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 the backlash that comes from the vanity of being a, a Hollywood star. Right. Um, Obviously, the film focuses more on stuts and sort of the the way the, the way he got to where he is now mm. um,
1: well that that 's almost part of the film 's journey is that it starts with Jonah Hill really desperately wanting it to be about stuts and then being closed off and reserved and not answering questions until after that sort of twist in that first act. Mm um where we we do see him open up more by the end but i think you're right that's the trick is it's a film that's meant to be about stuts but is constantly you're constantly realizing like it is also about Joan hill because it can't be about one without it also being about the other
0: it's a tough it's an interesting film cuz you're always constantly in the back of your head you're asking yourself is he acting sometimes does he Time his laughs really well, does he yeah. withhold information? Where does where does the acting start and stop? It's very similar to things like Bo Burnham's Inside where mm. he's got these comedy skits but then he's there monologuing to his reflection. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um it's very hard to find where the, the, the where the line is. Yeah,
1: so, where one stops and the other starts, you know, so the, to speak. I didn't feel that as much in this one, admittedly. Again, I think I was sort of disarmed by that that twist scene when it's like well, the curtain had been lifted that at that point I kind of almost stopped questioning that. And I think the only real scene that I felt kind of uncomfortable with, but in a sense that it was uncomfortable because it was honest and upfront is the scene where Jonah Hill's mum comes in mm-hmm. and the three of them are having, well, it's really the two of them having a conversation one-on-one starts so to sort of present, Yeah. but it is that conversation about her reaction to you know him as a fat child and you know what what the response should be to whether he should lose weight or is it for his health or is it because society expects him to and what effect does that have on him in Mm. in terms of the maternal effect and then vice versa the relationship and this goes to stutz as well the relationship he has with women later on in life because of those early insecurities which is something i can relate to as well
0: but hopefully not later in life (laughs)
1: no 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 look i'm in a very good place and i made plenty of jokes about autism earlier in this show but the truth is like that was a gigantic barrier for me in terms of just Mm. talking with people and talking with women in particular so when i'm hearing Stutz talk about that and how that ties into his uh, parents and the line i wrote specifically which really stuck with me was when his dad turns to him when Stutz's dad turns to him and says i love you but if you don't become a doctor we can never respect you so I think that's sort of the paraphrase of the line there. But just like this un- unachievable expectation and Stutz even goes on to s- basically say he is a failure to his parents. Or oh, except maybe the part where he actually did become a doctor. The one thing they actually said they needed him mm. to be to be respected and he still feels like a failure for having done that. So, you're right. There's a lot of the parental side of it as well. I mean, parents play a huge role. Yeah. They talk
0: about the stakeholders in one's life and and one's mental health and and relationships are such a huge talking point Mm. uh, of the film and the importance of having positive relationships that you consistently nurture and and celebrate with. And um, I think this film does a pretty good job at highlighting that.
1: Yeah. Well, it is. they kind of come back to it quite a lot, so it is a big part of it. The other thing... I haven't talked about the string of pearls yet, which is kind of a simple, um, I guess, analogy into a series of actions. It, this is the other thing that I would attest to a storytelling, script writing metaphor. Yeah, in that the uh, series of pearls, or the sorry, the string of pearls, is just story beats yeah and that the idea is that there is no value attribute to any one of them some story beats can be more important than others they're nevertheless all a singular beat Mm -hmm. um and the and the reference that i made this is very similar to the one they talk about in the film is when i was younger i would do you say a to do list of the day on my phone with little check boxes yeah and half of them would be wake up get dressed brush teeth just you know these pearls as they call them just very simple things to to at least get me on a move of or a flow of i'm actually achieving Mm -hmm. things today and i guess that's sort of the best comparison there i don't know if you've if you haven't done a to-do list seek i'm sure you have
0: yeah Yeah. like shopping lists and stuff like that yeah absolutely yeah it's fair enough it is interesting the position that he has and we sort of when we unveil these tools we get to see them happen firsthand is that he he provides these tools and has this mindset that he's not there just to listen he's actually there to f- help fix you or yeah help yeah. um improve your mental health well uh well-being and um yeah so things like the string of pearls where it's a systematic step-by-step uh guide, mm. it ends up being a very helpful, uh, way of working on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. and his visual cards are very clear and assembler. Yeah.
1: Well. And you're right. Even the way they talk about like putting little dots in the circles, but then talking about the inverse of that. hmm Um, no, it was really great. And that sort of goes back to two questions I had mm. going into this film I had two very specific questions. Um. One more related to the film than the other, but one of them being, why isn't this just a podcast, if it's just a
0: conversation between two people? Yeah, you know what, it got got to a point where it felt like a podcast sometimes, didn't it?
1: Yeah, well I think my only answer to that question is, you're right, because Stutz is a very um, visual person, he has all these drawings and ways of simplifying big ideas, Mm -hmm. I mean that's what sort of motivates it to be a a film. I mean, the, the fact that Jonah Hill would rather make a movie than a podcast, yeah, that's fair enough. But I think playing that, to his strengths. Yeah, exactly. But I think that visual thing is sort of what it gets away with. Yeah. Otherwise this could easily be a podcast. It could be a series of podcasts it could be stutz, you know, twenty episodes of him talking about life and death and, each tool. and strategies and each tool, exactly, breaking those up into different episodes. Um, that being said, I'm I'm glad this this is a film. I'm glad it's not even a, a like a series. Mm. Because I feel like that would be almost like capitalizing on him too much. Yeah. And the other thing as well, not to do with the two questions I had, but to do with Jonah Hill's thesis of getting this out to other people so they can see it and maybe it helps guide them. Mm -hmm. And I'm not usually... You know me, Zeke. Self-proclaimed capitalist.
0: You are a little bit of a capitalist.
1: It's not like me to say what I'm about to say, Zeke. Wow. But shouldn't this be free? Should this not be behind a Netflix payroll?
0: That should just be on YouTube?
1: Well... I mean, yeah, but I'm thinking even further than that in terms of, I mean, most SPS people... on demand. SBS <laughs> yeah. on demand. Oh, no, at least they... And, oh, and then YouTube has those as well. No, but I'm thinking, like, even to people who just don't have... The, the kind of people that have to go to, to their local library to get internet access. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about, like, that level of accessibility that I think this film should actually trying to achieve because
2: mm. he
1: says it. It is his thesis statement to get this out to as many people as possible.
0: I guess Netflix is the number one streaming service.
1: Netflix is... I mean, you're, you're not wrong. It actually is, like... It's a very popular streaming service. It's not the most expensive. And there's a lot of people out there who would rather sit on Netflix than go to the movie theatre. Even though I'm pretty sure this did have a small theatrical run. Mm. would have been cool to see it there. But... I know, it's very uncharacteristic to me to me to say this,
0: Seek. Yeah. <laughs> Why isn't it free?
1: I know, but... I actually think that is something worth considering, even if it's soon in the near future, yeah, I mean there should be something said for that. Let's keep going with the tools you've got the maze, the quest for fairness and comparing to others um this is this is a tough one this is a tough one. when I did that podcast with Zach, we had him on for Halloween several weeks ago we did, and we did a podcast where we talked about grudges. It was one of many topics in that podcast. I okay. talked about grudges and I talked about people who I've worked with in this industry or worked with in general who have either sort of screwed me over or didn't give me my due diligence in terms of payment or um, in terms of being put in the spotlight or mm-hmm. anything like that. There's a lot of that. And, and I mean, we know at Zeke, but even at uni, you know, with all these films and sort of comparing ourselves to others. I mean, we're sort of forced to almost, even with the grading systems. Yeah. So, I, it's a tough one for me because I am someone who does keep grudges. When when I feel like I've been truly wronged, I don't let that go.
0: You're a venge, venge, vengeful guy.
1: <laughs> I do like my venge vengefulness. But at the same time, I can acknowledge that this is true in terms of this quest for fairness and that we frankly waste time thinking about what's fair and what's not fair and other people... Maybe doing things not the same way that you're doing, but getting ahead of you. Well, if you're yeah, the right it's way, sort of like it.
0: that looking over the looking over the fence and and having that "woe is me" rather than actually looking after yourself.
1: Exactly, grass is green on the other side. Yeah, that yeah, kind of thing.
0: And it's hard. It's harder to work on yourself, and it's easier to get lost in in that maze of, yeah. of denying that you know everything comes comes to them easier than it comes to you because that's yeah. not how you get. Done, and I think it's it's such an interesting film. I have to ask mm. my one of my curious parts of this is: yeah. Does this film change its themes and feelings if this is a female? If this is an actress presenting this film on Stutz, so say it's uh, one of his female clients mm. doing the same film and them discussing this. Is this film about general well-health being, but more acutely male mental um, well-health and well-being?
1: I think... Or is it more universal? I think... Straight answer is I think it is more universal. That is... and, And the fact that all these tools that you are going through right now I think do apply to, frankly, anyone. However... I think this film, it, the, the film will be, slight. I mean, the tools will be the same, but I think the film would be slightly different because I think mean, there is something to be said about the male on male relationship that Stutz and Jonah Hill mm-hmm. share and Stutz is even self-referential and like, he keeps making jokes about, you know, you've got to stop dumping your shit on me, man. Like, yeah. things like that, which are really funny. The dude, um, the man. There's a bit of a dude bro thing going on there. But then a lot of the conversations I have about themselves, particularly Stutz, <laughs> Uh, and their relationship to their mothers, respectively. There's actually a lot more talk and and demonstration of um, mother-son relationships than there are mother-daughter relationships mm. or father-son relationships. So I think it's that's really important to note, is that we're looking at this from two guys who are reflecting back on the relationship they have with their mothers, and obviously it starts in his father, but for what we're talking about now, let's focus on the mothers. Um... And and sort of where that the maternity side of that relationship ends and begins, and what's expected of one's mm-hmm. mother and what's expected of a son, and I think from that standpoint, in the kinds of specific conversations they have, it would be very different if either one of them were female. I feel like, mm. but generally, I think these tools do apply to virtually anyone.
0: Fair yeah, yeah fair. <laughs> thank you for answering my question.
1: Ah, you're very welcome, Zeke. <laughs> We're going into active love, which I think I talked a little bit about earlier in terms of concentrating the love in you and focusing on that person that you think of when you think of the maze mm-hmm. um. I this again going back to like the relationship Stutz has with his mother. It's like and and the way she talks about her hatred of men in general. Because I think that's a big part of what you're talking about in terms mm-hmm. of how different would this be from a different gender perspective. Um, this tool, I not that I've tried it. Like I said, I it's not that I like having grudges, but I do have grudges and I don't let go of those grudges. This tool is would be extremely difficult for me. I feel like. Mm. even just that imagination of it. It's interesting because, like, I look at that, the maze and, and active love and even radical acceptance to an extent, which is, yeah. you know, the, his idea of squeezing the juice and really, really taking the positives out of a bad situation, like, really trying to set your mindset.
0: Like, finding finding positive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like anything, any challenges or frustrations... Um, that come from professional relationships, but because of those struggles mm-hmm. and and the frustrations you got from that professional relationship, you sought out many op- opportunities from it and got given were presented with more mm-hmm. sort of. And but it is tough. It is really yeah. tough to try and turn sometimes utter resentment. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things that. You know, it's. I can I can name three or four professional relationships with people that I'm incredibly frustrated with all mm. the time. But trying to. I always do try and actively, and in and, and this it's called, you know, this, this sort of active love um, approach to things. But you always try and go, well, if I didn't, like, if I didn't, I wouldn't have these opportunities to work or I wouldn't mm. have been working in such a. a Great casual position for such a long period of time while mm. I was studying, despite the fact I might have problems with people that work in that organisation or, right. or even the organisation itself. But it, um, it's really interesting to try and spin that, and I think it's it helps because grudges yeah. really do not achieve anything.
1: No, I mean I think at the end of the day, you're right. It contributes to that maze. It contributes to the fact that like, and th- there's no positive growth from that.
0: Wasted energy too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's very few people I would use I would describe with the word hate. Very few people. Um, there's a lot more of a passive energy to that, but that energy nevertheless is still there. Mm. So I'm not going to pretend like it isn't. But I mean, I think the whole taking positives out of bad situations. I mean, it it just feels essential. And you know, some a lot of people go through different kinds of pain and hurt, and this goes mm. back to those three aspects of reality especially pain and uncertainty but i think the the radical acceptance i've i know people who they cannot do radical acceptance it is impossible they in fact suck negative energy out of positive scenarios and those people live lives i don't necessarily want to live myself so i think i think that is an absolute necessity the radical acceptance even if you don't personalize it with a particular person you can still have those little grudges and Um, I think as long as you have a general ability to do it and this ties into loss processing which took me a minute to understand because it's a long analogy that the film goes Mm -hmm. into I think it's the last one they do which is tools to process loss pick something you're attached to whether it is a job or a person or whatever it is imagine you're grasping it then you let it go when you're falling you say I'm willing to lose everything as you fall into the sun I guess it's where the multiple sons develop. You get the quote, "We are everywhere," and I guess the the overall idea is to that you do not become unattached to everything, but feel free to become uh, or to not attach yourself to one singular thing, or that mm. not be your entire personality or or willfulness of life. I suppose. Um, I don't know if that's something I've truly ever dealt with. I've always had multiple things to live for, if that's mm. the best way to describe it. Um, even though I've gone through some very bad breakups in the past, where that some some of those were very difficult for me to process because there was so much writing on it, I guess. And I think that is something you, when you grow up, is you learn to just... Things just happen.
0: Yeah. Um, well, yeah. you start to have that mentality that if, um, you know, in it's like everything. It's like, I'm, I'm going into a teaching job that I've now mm. spent and been actively studying for five and a half years. Mm. And it, it's like, Oh, well, what, what if you go into it and you, like you get burnt out or it goes wrong and you lose that position. It's, it would be wrong for me to say that I, you know, we, we, are always going to have ad, adversary things happen, you know, mm. stuff that's going to be adverse to us. And, um, there's always tomorrow, isn't there? That right. News. Yeah. It's that thing where it's like, yeah, I've uh, I've been lucky. I don't think I've had too much tragedy or or too much loss. Mm. Um, the only time I've ever felt loss and like my life was probably in that first year leaving high school. Yeah. Um, before we started doing our film degree, I definitely felt. Quite lost and and didn't have a lot of purpose, um, but that passed, and mm. I found purpose and, and found a lot of really positive things. And you get reminded of that, and you always it's interesting because we forget because we often have to. We always we're so worried, you know. We're two people in our mid twenties now, and your twenties are such a volatile decade because. So many people are moving at so many different directions and yeah. paces. and yeah. It's hard to know. It's like, oh, what do I value? What do I need? How do I get what I need? Mm. And all of this stuff's rushing through your brain while your 20s are just going by like the clappers. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't feel that long ago, but it's five years since you turned 20 and you're like, yeah. oh, okay, well, this is moving quite quickly. Um, and it's it's tough, you know? It's tough sometimes to... you. Fig- I feel like... The essence of this documentary is is these tools are simply way... Like, they are a different way of interpreting lessons that you've probably been taught or encouraged to practice your whole life.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: But essentially, isn't that what therapy is? Therapy is trying to find someone who can help communicate positive well-being and finding for each person, that the route to developing a more positive mindset in life.
1: No, I think think you're absolutely spot on with that in terms of these tools are just reworded versions of things we've heard in our lives before, but I think the way this film and the way Stutz lays it out in terms of the way he words it, the titles that he gives these tools, and then the order that he delivers them, which is also through Jonah Hill and, and the... His direction and the editing the mm. and the way the documentary portrays him, I'm sure Stutz had a very big hand in how to present that order, for example, but you know the fact that we are ending on loss processing that's the last thing it really goes into but I think you're right it's it's just a way to recontextualize something that is already within us mm. and I think it that's almost it's not that it's more important than learning something from scratch. I mean, both can be very important, but I think recontextualization can be more important because it could be that second or third or fourth or fifth time you've heard something but said in such a way or explained or visualized in such a way that you finally click and you finally get what it means and how you can use that to progress your own life. Because to your point about us being in our mid-twenties and seeing people in all sorts of different... You know, I went to a wedding a couple of of months ago. My friend and we were in the same... uh, you know, year group, and she's only a few years younger than me. But it's like I see other people around me that are either getting jobs or losing jobs, getting into relationships or losing relationships. And ebbing and flowing, you mentioned Bo Jack Horseman earlier. That was sort of a, a writing philosophy of that show is that people just go through a series of ups and downs. And sometimes they all align and sometimes they don't. And sometimes people just aren't in the mood to talk to each other based on those life mm-hmm. experiences. And I think that's how I found myself to contextualize the past few years for me is seeing where everyone else is at and and, you know it's not a maze situation it's a very objective version of me looking into the maze and see where everyone else is at and realizing ups and downs ebbs and flows but also there's a lot of things in my life that are sort of on the right trajectory and i was kind of hoping for certain things to go a little faster than they were in terms of my work situation i was hoping to be further than i am currently Mm. But then on the flip side, a year ago, I would have never in a million years guessed that I would be in the relationship that I am now. Um, And I know, you know, you've just had your one year anniversary as well. And it's like, I don't think either of us were predicting that kind of growth. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things.
0: It's like, I remember I had a conversation with a couple of our sort of mutual friends Mm. And we went, we went to like an Oktoberfest celebration. Yeah. And it was the third year we had gone to it. Mm. And it was the biggest group we had gone with. You know, we've all, a lot of us have got partners now. So we have this massive group. Whereas the first time we went, it was just us three. Single squeeze. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we're all single. And it's, But it's one of those things where it's, and obviously, so the context of the day completely changes. Right. But it was one of these moments I said to them, I was like, look. No one would have predicted in a year that we would be in this position now. Mm. Just as two years ago, we wouldn't have predicted where we were last year or where we are this year. And things, go, and we make mistakes and we keep moving forward. But mm. And it's easy that, you know, sometimes it's like I... You know, you, you ask earlier where it's like, oh, where's a time that you could place yourself back in? Sure. It's Get like... Shadow, yeah. It's really easy to go, oh, well, I wish I could hit back at go back to 18 and hit mm. the reset button and take this this first 7 years of like adulthood and completely rewrite it but mm. and 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 be more efficient cuz i i think i'm obsessed with efficiency Yeah. um and i think that's really come in the last 2 years especially it's like you get to this point where you're like okay i want i want a full-time job and i want a house by the time i'm 30 yeah. or, or like i l- put down all these goals and timelines like twi- time well. yep. for these when I was like 21, 22. And I hit all of them. Mm. But I didn't then take a moment to appreciate that I hit all of them. I right. Went, all right, cool. Next next slot of goals. Yeah. And it's like, I've had multiple people now say in the last month, especially, because it's been a crazy month, mm. where they're like, you just need to stop and take a breath yeah. and actually enjoy this stuff because i have a real problem i've always had a real problem with savoring right just never do it (laughs) and i think that that's not healthy habit too because you should you need to celebrate that stuff more Mm. um and it's weird because it's like you know i just had my birthday what in the last couple weeks and it's like you see all the people that turn up and you're like oh well this is all because of my adult life these these people are here because of that
1: Have that sort of milestone moment Um, where you look back and you're like, wow, Like all the things have led to this moment. Yeah. I've had a few of those moments. I mean, even just in the last week, if we go back to Shadow Representation... I didn't. It's not a career update, so I didn't feel the need to bring it up. But I, I went back to my old primary school to present a few days ago. Mm. I haven't been there in over twelve years, and like I was recognizing teachers left and right and center. They were. I was shocked they were all still there because my high school bloody they changed their name after I left. They bloody bulldozed it down, got new teachers. <laughs> so, so that was like a weird thing for me to like step back yeah. in time, but then present everything that I had learned in in those years since to show them and part of it is their teaching just as much as the parenting is also their teaching and how did that, you know, affect me in the years to come and even comparing things like, um, something I would do after lunch was like, go between this closet full of math instruments and deliver things to classrooms. You know, it's a maths monitor, they called me. And I just, I found a way to tie that to the back cool room of dominoes when I used to work there and just tying all these experiences and these life lessons together again for me to create meaning to all those things like any mm. good story every you know there's always those Chekhov's guns and there's always like plants and payoff. Sure. and I'm always trying to contextualize that in my own life but then you have those big moments like you had at your birthday where all these almost all these characters in your story have come together and it's almost like a celebration and yeah. you can save for that moment even just for a night
0: yeah and it, it's, it, it's it's interesting. Interesting. yeah it's I, I definitely think that this documentary outlines that mm. that it's a 90 minute and breathe moment yeah kind of film because it's meant to be that kind of film it's it's the the two rocks in in everywhere all at once you know yeah uh it's the breathe moment and you know that's that that it's so funny because it's like you take that film that is still the the only scene that i like thoroughly remember is two rocks sitting there interesting yeah. and that and that breathe reprieve moment and it's like i think what this film's doing is it, it also you know it deconstructs our depiction of jonah hill because sure he's yeah. someone that to be honest it can be in like he is utterly insane in most roles that he's in and often plays quite deplorable characters mm. And the film gives us just as much of a deconstruction of his psyche, his mental state. And to be honest, his intellects, which we don't get to see often, mm. because the representation we have of him is either in a movie or in very controlled environments, like press environments. Yeah, and interviews and Interviews and, and, and... So it's really interesting to see this very vulnerable state, you know, starts prompting him with questions, he doesn't... And so he looks emotionally you know uncomfortable they both use humor to direct any sort of emotion which yeah. <laughs> I find is also that's that's where it comes back to that's that really interesting sort of masculine lens cuz men do that yeah. like that's a that's a, a ripple effect of don't show too much emotion mm. which even the therapist is struggling with to yeah. elicit emotions yeah. um which is why when Joan is prompting him about the relationship stuff it's It's so interesting to see like Phil like just r- reminiscing he's sitting there recounting, yeah. thinking about how he's going to answer the question, but his face paints a thousand words, which is probably another reason why this is so needed to be a, a film and not a, a podcast because I think the facial reactions... Yeah,
1: studying their faces and seeing the emotions sort of leak out before they answer a question or during the answer of a mm. question. No, I agree with you. I was fascinated by... Because that's it. its a, I mean, it goes into your question about how much of it was a performance versus it being mm. authentic. But it would have been some damn good performances if so... <laughs> Especially when Jonah Hill... If um, some of the things their faces were doing, yeah, when they were trying to hold back emotion or you know work through a beat of what they were going to say next, it was just it, it was real, yeah. or at least it felt real, felt felt authentic. And I, and I again, that's why I think that that point in the film when the veil is unlifted is so important because I was just I was a skeptic in a magic show until that moment, and I realized like okay, all bets are off. And there is still, I mean, of course, there is still an element of editing where, you know, editors come in and sort of slice and dice certain moments and put them together, and it's like something like a reality TV show, like, you know, we talked about Dragon's Den a few weeks ago. That is much more overtly chopped and edited to construct responses and emotions in these people. Um, Here, it feels a little more natural, so there is that believability to it, but overall, I think... And to go back to that... um, I guess the thesis statement of did I take something away from this documentary? And I think the answer is a thousand percent mm-hmm. yes. Even if it is, it is, like you said, just a reworded, recontextualized lesson that I've already learned in the past. But perhaps I can take this new visual, this new explanation, and turn it into something else. So, yeah.
0: Very good. Very good. Jake! Mm. What was your highlight scene?
1: Um, <laughs> I mean, it's got to be that scene. This has to be. I mean, I just I've been praising it the whole whole damn podcast. It's just
0: it's a pretty good uh, deconstruction, that's for sure. It was just
1: it was a good authentic surprise because up until that point, I'm just saying over and over again, I'm like, oh no, oh no, this feels fake. Mm. It's something off. The editing, the 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 delivery of the lines, the way the camera's moving around, it just doesn't. At that point, I'm like, maybe it should have been a podcast, but then you realize very quickly. No, I actually think it yeah really does belong in the medium that it is. So thank you, Jonah Hill, for that. What about you, Zeke? What's your highlight scene?
0: Uh, I'm a big fan of the. I actually do like the um, the mum sit down scene. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really good scene. and It shows us that emotional grounding. But I, I actually do. I sit back on the 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 loving relationship part when mm. it starts is being questioned on his romantic relationships and sort of how the. Perceptions, the the residual effect his mum's perceptions of the world and particularly men mm. uh, resonated with him as a as a child and and a, as a grown adult and I I find that really interesting that this film is trying to show you how powerful relationships are whether they're romantic platonic familial um, and the resonance that you're relationships can have on another person Mm. without you actually really considering it yeah and that's quite difficult because obviously you've got to look after yourself self-care is really important Mm. but yeah it is the things that we say and we do with all of these that can lead to effects on, on our children or um our friends because their perception of the world is influenced by your point of view yeah really. and that film uh, that that scene really picks that out because clearly you know what Phil was saying is he hasn't had a successful romantic relationship because of the impacts and of relationships uh, that he's had with family members yeah and their point of view
1: which even in its own right is not only the recognize recognition that he has that problem with women but where that comes from so it's like, I, I imagine Stutz has made a lot of progress on that journey as well, of even just identifying that's where it's come from, mm. for it to end up in this film. Yeah, wonderful. Stuts. Beautiful.
0: <laughs> Stuts. It's currently out in Netflix, which yeah. you will have. <laughs> you if, most if certainly have. If you're watching have. this episode, I assume you have it. Yeah. Speaking of Should Netflix, though, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week?
1: Not a lot, Zeke. Pretty... uh, Quality over quantity? Okay. Potentially. There's certainly not quantity. Coming to Netflix this week, you have The Volcano Rescue from Wakara. 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 I can't pronounce anything. It's a documentary about the 47 tourists and guides who found themselves trapped by a volcanic eruption off the coast of New Zealand, and sees minute-by-minute footage and personal accounts of the events, uh, of the singular event, I should say, Zeke. Uh, kangaroo Valley also journeys us through the secret valley in Australia and follows baby kangaroo Mala for a dangerous coming-of-age journey, and in fact is narrated by Sarah Snook. I assume narrated. It just says cast Sarah Snook. She could be playing the kangaroo, but mm. but
0: I, I I doubt it. You imagine? I, I mean, Sarah Snook I is can. a kangaroo.
1: She probably has. She's probably already played a kangaroo in some other cartoon. You know, I'm kind of tempted to look it up. Sarah Snook. It's a shame that Succession's not going to come up on Letterbox because it's a television show. You know, what? when I was rewatching Steve Jobs a few weeks ago, she was in that. Oh, I she's um in the first and third timeline. She's like one of the um people who run the like the auditorium, and he and and Michael Fassbender yells at her about the fire um, lights or the exit signs. Mm. That's her. There you go. It before. I, I don't think she's played a kangaroo in the past, but I reckon she should, Zeke. Mm. I reckon she should. Coming to Prime, we've got About Fate, which is two strangers who believe in love but never seem to be able to find its true meaning in a twist of events where fate puts them together on one stormy New Year's Eve. Seems very...
0: Cliché.
1: Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Could be good. Nanny sees an undocumented nanny working for a privileged couple in New York City. And as she prepares for the arrival of her son, the one she left behind in West Africa, a violent presence invades her reality, threatening the American dream that she's been painstakingly piecing together.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A lot of metaphors and...
0: A lot, a lot going on. Yeah,
1: it's a bit vague. That's fine. Nazik, if do you feel like going to the cinemas in the next week? Yes. Too bad. There's only one film you can watch. Ah. It's not the menu, unfortunately. Avatar, The Way of Water. It's called The Way of Water? I wrote that without checking. The Way of Water. It is.
0: From auteur James Cameron.
1: <laughs> Self-proclaimed auteur James Cameron. No, he is an auteur. Look, we have to talk about this for a hot minute. Because I'm seeing this weird thing going on where mm. James Cameron's saying a bunch of stuff that makes him just sounds like an egotistical dickhead.
0: He's John Paul I, Ridley Scott.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I stand by the fact that that's what he is. Because... Him going around and be like, "Well, guys, get excited in ten years when Avatar four drops," because the producers were like, "Wow!" So just so you know, and also my CGI is better than Thanos, so take that. I am the best. It's like, okay, calm down, mate, relax.
0: Hey, when you are Michael Jordan in <laughs> the Chicago Ball of Directors.
1: Uh, but look, I think uh, you got that aspect of it, but then you've also got the, the aspect of Avatar being this, like, technically, it's not pre-MCU, but basically pre-MCU film mm. that was it was a film and made a lot of money because of its visual effects and 3D movements, and, and not a lot of people remember the story. I'm going to reiterate that. You can't convince me otherwise. Most people don't remember the three-hour story of Avatar mm. other than the very basic fru-line of the story. <laughs> and the fact that their their hair braids tangle together. That was something I was reminded of today. I completely mm. forgot that was even a thing in Avatar. And then people make fun of it because they're making the next seven films back to back to back to back, which sounded like a joke until Marvel started actually doing that yeah. successfully. Now, this one's coming out. And what I've seen in the last few days... Along with the strew of comments of people saying they don't care because the first one came out thirteen years ago. They did. And who needs an avatar sequel? Versus this new group that's just sort of started to arise of people who are really standing the hell out of Avatar. Mm. The
0: Avataris. The
1: Avataris. Talking about James Cameron like he's a a god amongst legends or a legend amongst gods. And yes, it's true. He's got a good track record with sequels. Aliens. Terminator 2. I get it. I get it. But it's been a while, folks. And you said he's got the Ridley Scott... Was- egotism going on. There are
0: also sequels to properties that weren't his originally.
1: Oh, Terminator. He did the first Terminator. Okay. Yeah. But, to your point. Even so. Like, I get it. He's made good sequels. But, like, I just... And I'm not... Critiquing in the film. I have no inkling of what I'm going to think of this new Avatar
0: film. Could... Time, time is, is key, though, because, mm. you know, you take the Terminator films, they're two years apart from each other? Two, three years apart?
1: No, in fact, I reckon they're, like, I am reckon they're, like, a decade apart. Let me find out. It might be eighty, eighty four 84 and 91, seven years apart. Okay, well,
0: that's seven and... Seven and thirteen. We also have to remember Avatar was groundbreaking because it brought in the the era of the three D movie. Um, it was an era like that has now dissipated. It was sort, it
1: it sort of like the last hurrah of three D, of like really good three D.
0: Like, you, like there it was the only hurrah of really good three D. There was no no <laughs> what about was, Spy Kids. 4D? I was gonna I was about to say <laughs> you had those or the Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Um, no, but it was like it basically standardised 3D for about five years, and then, mm. but no other film was made with 3D in mind. So you take that aspect out, that beautiful, immersive aspect, it's a long film mm. that's pretty good popcorn sci-fi. It's probably the best I could I give just, it.
1: I, I've got it. I'm looking at it right now. It's the first film in my second um, closet there.
0: But- it's also like everyone's first blu-ray i feel was Avatar. yeah
1: that's true it was sort of that that age where you buy a ps3 that's the first thing you buy yeah ironically mine was Terminator salvation which is also sam worthington yeah did you look at that but yeah i think i mean avatar came out in a really wild time for cinema where there was this cg sort of um i mean we've had cgi imagery or cg imagery i should say for a long time but that really felt like it was really trying to hone in on that as like the key aspect of it along with the 3d you're right so it felt very contemporary in that sense um
0: very much i mean see yeah and it, obviously now we've endured 13 years of heavy cgi and i think a lot of people are very fatigued uh like by it. But like you said, there's this this cultural movement too. These people that are religiously defending Avatar, which
1: I I think my key takeaway here is because I will definitely make fun of James Cameron for his ego. I'm not going to make fun of Avatar: The Way of Water until I watch the damn film, and even the original Avatar. I haven't seen it in 13 years. I saw it once in theaters with my 3D glasses. That was it. It's like I need to rewatch it. Yeah. So I'm not talking about the quality of the film or anything like that. I'm just saying, I don't get that level of excitement that some people have. And I completely get the skepticism that people have. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's been a long time, and the original has its fans, but I think the vast majority of people don't understand why it's the highest-grossing film of all time. Because I don't... It's tough. You know what? I'm going to shut my mouth on this, because it's actually... It's getting tricky. So let me watch the original again. I don't know if I'm going to watch the new one mm. before next week's episode.
0: Maybe. Are you going to be able to watch it? Because it's a film that really um, has a go at capitalism.
1: Oh. Avatar. I'm going I'm to struggle. Yeah. But Zeke, Stats sh- should be free. I'm a changed <laughs> man. <laughs> so anyway, I was happy to have that big-ass conversation about Avatar because the only other thing even worth mentioning coming to cinemas uh, is at Luna, uh, Leaderville, Essex, Windsor, um, Outdoor, as you mentioned. This Probably Saturday, it's...
0: literally the film that's like counterculture to this to avatar.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, next to James Cameron, you have Steven Spielberg. You have his latest film, The Fae Woman's, premiering, oh yeah. So or, the previewing. self-proclaimed
0: goat against the actual goat. <laughs>
1: Previewing this Saturday, the 17th, sees the a self-reflective story from his own childhood as young Sammy Fableman falls in love with movies after being taken to the greatest show on earth and equips himself with a camera to make his own home movies. Um, I'm hearing this is excellent, and unfortunately I can't watch it this Saturday. But,
0: but I might be.
1: <laughs> oh, you lucky duck.
0: Let's so, yeah. hope, right? Let's hope it's, it is really good. He gets an Oscar nom. Mm. And Steven can Steven Spielberg can talk about how he's had an Oscar best picture nom in every decade of his life. <laughs> well, West Side Story got a nom last year. Yeah, he's it? already done there it. There you go.
1: He's already done it. And he's a win now.
0: which decades did he win in? Seventies? He would've won in seventies, eighties, nineties, he would have won. For best picture?
1: Or best director?
0: I'm gonna go with either or. Okay, fair um, point.
1: Because I know he didn't get best director for Jaws.
0: He got best film, was, didn't
1: he? I, yeah. He definitely got nominated best film Jaws, but I'm I'm really blanking right now. I'll on go through. We'll get that ones.
0: answer. We'll get that answer.
1: That's okay. So yeah, not uh, a lot more talking to be had than movie going, based on this week's. As if he uh, sounds good. I'll watch Avatar, of course. Favorments look good. Netflix it- documentaries. It's it's good list, sick.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a good, quaint list. We're not doing any of those no. next week on the show. It is our Christmas episode. Yay! Our Christmas episode. Krish, Merry Christmas. Um, yeah, because
1: yeah. the episode after is the 26th Boxing Day.
0: Yeah, so we figured so, we'll make next week Christmas.
1: Yeah. But Jake! We've decided. What are we watching? Next week on the show, Zeke. Oh, it's also a director's corner. It is a director's corner. It's Chris Columbus' director's corner. We're watching Home. Alone. Where are you
2: going? We're gonna miss the plane. When the McAllister family left on their Christmas vacation.
0: Did we miss the plane? <laughs> no, you just made it. Yeah!
2: They forgot one small thing. Have yourself I've a terrible feeling. Christmas. Did you lock up? Let yeah. yourself be light.
1: Do we set the timers on the lights? Mm-hmm. What else could we be forgetting? 8-year-old Kevin! Kevin McAllister is accidentally left behind when his family travels to France for Christmas, leaving him to have to defend his house from a pair of burglars. You're doing the famous face, Zeke. Thank you. But you know what I did the famous face to last night when I was typing this out? Is that the realisation that accidentally and accidentally are both perfectly reasonable ways to say or type accidentally. Wow. Yeah. Although I think it's more generally accepted the accidentally, like T A L L Y. Yeah. Not just L Y.
0: Yes. But I'd say so. More clearly I... enunciates it.
1: That's true. That's true. That's that's yeah, my primary right. takeaway from this Chris, logline. Christopher
0: Columbus. I might have to watch the first Harry Potter movie, which I haven't done in probably about ten years.
1: Mm. I'm just thinking the music. Dun dun, dun 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 dun
0: Yeah. Anyway. Legit. He's I...
1: a fantastic director. Just for those two Harry Potter movies alone.
0: Establishing the my, tone. My of... two favourite. Yeah? Wow. I'd say. Fair enough. First four I like. Don't like the second four.
1: Damn.
0: Yeah. I'm a, I'm a pretty meh on Harry Potter. I've always been a pretty... No, that's yeah. fair
1: enough. I pr- I can appreciate... My feds definitely Prisoner of Azkaban, but I can appreciate you liking the first two more because the tone that Chris Columbus sets, like, I don't think people talk about him enough when they talk about the Harry Potter movies. Like, he set everything up. The visual aesthetic of it, the casting, everything. Yeah. Like, you've got to give him credit. And the fact that I didn't know this, Home Alone's his second ever film, ever. Pretty wild. Like, before any of the films you could you would think of when you think of Chris Columbus, he made Home Alone before any of them.
0: Well, I Crazy. look forward to exploring his uh. cinematic portfolio and hopefully we can delve more into uh, Avatar next week on the show too. We'll have a talk yeah, about Yeah, I
1: think I kind of owe it to myself to, to do this, to watch both, and we can get into it.
0: And there we go. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Starship Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And will catch you next week with Christopher Columbus's Home Alone. Yeah.